But let's talk about this deal in front of us. This bringing peace deal is just a little over you know a week or two old. You know, you you mentioned signed last last uh, month, but also no violence phase for yeah. seven days. We're we're out of that now. It's 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 very new as you and I sit here and have this conversation. Already, the Taliban's actions have justified what the U.S. Air Force uh, called a defensive That's strike. Right. Uh, after they attacked Afghan security forces checkpoint on Wednesday, just Wednesday of this week, two days ago, as, as you and I sit here, violence against the Afghan people has increased since this deal was signed. Dozens of attacks, people killed all over the country. The Taliban looking to live up, as I mentioned earlier, to the letter of the agreement by not attacking U.S. or coalition forces. When you see this deal that is in place and already we're seeing violence worse. I, you, because you a few minutes ago were saying you were hopeful. Yeah, and I, I looked at this and I see a lot of hope as well. But what about the other side of this? Are you at all concerned when this is the initial response, or is this kind of the, the, the growing pains as you were describing the, the warlords and and other dif- disparate decentralized power structures, kind of fighting for what the new Afghanistan is going to look like. Yeah, it's more of that latter. It's, and I think it's more of the uh, Taliban and the Afghan government under President Ghani. And remember, there's going to be two Afghan governments now, um, you know, uh, a, a parallel government under Abdullah Abdullah. So the Afghan government under Ghani is really going to lose strength. But I think what you've seen in the last week has been posturing. Um the Afghan government and the Taliban are supposed to, under this deal, are supposed to start negotiations by March 10th. And I think um, the Taliban ha- are trying to show, like, look, hey, if you don't want to talk with us, if you don't want to complete this deal, we'll just defeat you militarily. Right? I mean, like, they're trying to show their strength. They're trying to show the, the Ghani government that, look, you the, this, the best option for you um, is to come and talk with us. Now, the Ghani government, on the other hand, the day after the negotiations, part of the deal was that there would be a prisoner swap, 6,000 prisoners. So 5,000 Taliban would be released and 1,000 Afghan government uh, forces would be released. And immediately, uh, literally the, the day after the agreement was signed, President Ghani uh, made, had a press conference. And this is important. Uh, it, this wasn't a minor statement. In, in the last five years, Ghani has had one other press conference. So for him to have a press conference was a big deal, right? I mean, for him to make, you know, to, to do this really showed, to have a press conference really showed how he felt about this. Um, said like, hey, look, we didn't say we were going to release 5,000 prisoners. Those prisoners are under our control. The Americans didn't talk to us about it. They, No one asked us, you know, no, we didn't agree to this. So immediately, Great. right, Ghani like put a, a, a through kind of a, a through, through a roadblock in there, through an obstacle. And I think the Taliban responded with, uh, you know, I think they were going to carry out attacks anyhow, but I think they they escalated even further. I think they, they launched more attacks than they may have been planning to in response to Ghani saying, we're not releasing prisoners. There's issues with this deal we don't like. And so I think the Taliban are naturally saying, hey, we'll keep fighting. You know, I mean, and this is um, so it's it's, you know, I'm very suspicious of, of Ghani with with, with Abdul Abdullah pulling out and forming his own government. Um, he's even weaker with the Americans committing to leave. Uh, he's, of course, his, his the, the idea that hit him, you know, facing the uh, the the same, um, you know, getting strung up uh, the Afghan communist leader, Najibullah, um, getting strung up like he was strung up, you know, in the streets 
um, you know, uh, when, when, when his government fell, you know, uh, or, or certainly anyone say, you know, think of Mussolini or whoever, you know, he doesn't, Gandhi does not want that to happen to himself, of course. Um, but also too recognizing that how weak his government precarious his government now is, um, you know, and that that's why there's a danger for a lot of spoilers in this. Like, certainly, why you know, if you prop up a corrupt in the the Afghan government is a kleptocracy. It is a it is, it is a complete. Uh, it's predatory. It's illegitimate. Um, it it is uh, ethnically uh, divided uh, or, or regionally divided, um, so that it preys on certain groups in Afghanistan, which is a fundamental aspect of American war making of, of divide and conquer of using one, uh, ethnicity, one tribe, one religion, et cetera, one sect against another. I mean, this goes back to the native American wars using one tribe against another tribe or against various tribes to try and, uh, you know, conquer basically. Um, and so that's a fundamental aspect of, of U.S. war. But now you have this fracturing within Ghani's constituency where he's even weaker than he's, he's weaker than the Afghan government is weaker than it has ever been since 2001. So that's weakest point. So he, you know, you know, does Ghani and his people and government want to see the Americans leave? Do they want to see, uh, you know, their support, the, their prop uh, leave? Um, so, yeah, you, you have this posturing occurring right now. Um, leading up to these negotiations. Um, and it is very dangerous. I don't know. You know, the other thing about this, too, is, is how much of all the verification methods and, and the way that uh, uh, the uh, uh, agreement is actually going to be enacted. Uh, I've not seen them. I mean, I, I think there's. Well, and if we know anything about the Trump administration, we know that there's going to be no attention to detail. That's like that. absolutely right. And so then the, the worry that is then, you know, how far does that trickle down to, you know, your lieutenant colonels, your colonels, your majors who are making decisions on the American side of whether or not it's OK for our planes to bomb the Taliban? Right. I mean, so, you know, you get into that in terms of like, well, it's very easy for this ceasefire between U.S. and Taliban forces to be violated if people don't understand the rules behind the ceasefire. You know, and the same goes for Taliban. How I mean, your, your local Taliban commanders, do they know what the rules are? You know, um, do they know uh, whether who they're allowed to attack, who they're not allowed to attack? So there's a lot of difficulty, you know, and, um, you know, you get into situations like this and, and forgiveness and patience and understanding is very key. Keeping your your, your the mind, uh, keeping your your, your, your kind of your um, uh, your mindset uh, along the lines of we have a goal we're trying to achieve here and let's not get distracted, distracted by the daily or even the weekly events. You know, our goal is long term. How do we get to the next stage in this process? You know, under this agreement, uh, in five months, the U.S. is supposed to draw down to 8,600. And then over the, the next nine months, the Afghan government and the Taliban are supposed to implement a permanent ceasefire. They're supposed to uh, also implement a power sharing agreement. You know, um, so how do you get to that point and ignoring all the things that are happening, even though you're you're talking about ignoring the deaths of a lot of people, the the, the the you know the continued slaughter, the continued suffering, you have to ignore that to keep your eyes on what your goal ultimately is, um, and that's something that's very difficult to do. And as we discussed earlier, there are plenty of people that want to see this agreement fall apart. 
Um, it's interesting in the U.S. Congress in the in in in, in the days before. Uh, so the agreement was signed on February 29th, and uh, three days prior uh, on a Wednesday. The, uh, in the House of Representatives, the House Armed Services Committee had a hearing. And the House Armed Services Committee, I think it is the largest committee in, in Congress. It has at least 50 members, I believe, on it. Um, and uh, the Secretary of Defense, Mark Esper, and the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Milley, were in for a briefing in front of the House Armed Services Committee. And only two members of, of, of that committee, out of you know more than 50, only with with this agreement coming up, uh, you know, three days to be signed in Qatar between the U.S. and Taliban to end, you know, the longest war in American history or, or, or however you want to describe it. Only two members of Congress, um, Liz Cheney was one of them, even asked questions about Afghanistan. So, uh, you know, I mean, it, it's not so much that, you know, that this agreement could be spoiled on the U.S. side by the, inc- the, the, the incompetency of the Trump administration, which certainly could screw this up, right? Absolutely. Very easily, right? I mean, like, that's not even a, you know, people ask me when I write, when I'm critical about Biden or Buttigieg or, or, or you know, I'm critical, critical of Bernie Sanders or whoever, that you know, a lot of times I'll get to say, how, how come you don't criticize Trump? It's like, <laughs> that, that makes no sense. Like, why would I waste my time? doing that. Everyone understands that. Everyone agrees on that. Everyone who's thinking about this in a certain way, you know, there's no reason to detail, uh, you know, my criticism of Trump because it's so broad. It's so basic that it's not worth (laughs) We would never get anything else done. We would never get anything else done. It's not worth my time articulating. It's much more, uh, you know, the issues involving, say, the the Democratic candidates are much more complex, much more nuanced, you know, um, much more, I think, more important than certainly bashing Trump because it's it's simple to do. It's like the difference between, like, throwing a a, a tennis ball against a barnside door or throwing a tennis ball through a, a tire on a rope. Right. I mean, like it, it, it's it's, you know, who cares about hitting the barn? I mean, anyone could do that, you know, I mean, so um, but but there are certainly um, um, so you, the, the other thing that might spoil it in the U.S., aside from weapons companies or people, uh, you know, Karen DeYoung from The Washington Post, uh, the day the agreement was signed on, on February 29th, uh, DeYoung, she had a, 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 a an article and she interviewed about five uh, former uh, members of the U.S. government um, who were involved with Afghanistan, and they were all incredibly critical of the deal, didn't want to see the deal go through, et cetera. And these are all men, um, and there are women too, whose legacies are tied to an eventual American victory in Afghanistan, that they don't want to see everything other than a victory because their legacies are tied to it. And then you have hawks like Liz Cheney, who just think that the way for American primacy needs to be continued. Uh, you know, if we have to bomb all the, you know, you go back to, uh, uh, you know, uh, Sam Huntington's clash of civilizations, right. The, which has, which had such an impact on, um, on so many foreign relations, so many international relations, uh, people, uh, including so many who are in power right now. So if we have and to now, bomb- by the way, by the way, that textbook or that 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 book is being reconsidered, I think, across the board in political science departments. Finally, it is. I was in college. You know, I was in college 15, 20 years ago and it was still being taught. But I think now we are finally reconsidering it. Yes. You know, and, and, and you know, he got what he gets wrong or what is uh, not right in his judgment or his considerations 
are what a lot of people take as faith, though. So there are many people, both on both sides, both the Democratic side and the Republican side. I would say the vast majority of the U.S. military officers who do this type of thinking, as well as uh, uh, civilians, uh, you know, this idea that you have borderlands, right, that you're going to have these, uh, you know, areas of barbarians, basically, right? Areas that are uncivilized, areas that you need to control because they can infect you. Uh, they can invade you. They can cause unrest that will spill over and, uh, and, 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 and impair your own country. Um, and, and, and so I, I think when you, you have someone like Liz Cheney or someone um, you know, and she's kind of a, she's the Donald Trump of the Congress, basically, in a lot of ways, right? I mean, <laughs> she'd probably but, take that as a, as a compliment, by the way. She probably would, right? I mean, she's worse, I, I don't want to say she's worse than her father, because that's, you know, I mean, now we can, we can get into a whole Star Wars conversation, right? You know, Darth Vader versus, uh, you know, Kylo Ren or something like that, <laughs> right? I mean, right? The other thing that would kill it, though, besides those who, who think we should be bombing it everywhere to control it, um, are those who are just apathetic towards it. Just totally uninterested. Totally. Exactly. And when you have this, again, this agreement being signed between the U.S. and the Taliban to end America's largest war and the House Armed Services Committee, none of them, with the exception of two uh, hawkish members of the Congress, ask questions about it to the Secretary of Defense and to the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. It wasn't like Matt Ho and Jared Rizzi were sitting in front of them. How dare I mean, you, first like, of all. <laughs> right, but, right? I mean, but hey, like this is, and no one asked questions. What might kill the deal is the apathy itself, right? Is the apathy, and I don't recall in the, in the debates, in the presidential debates right prior to the, um, uh, right prior to the the the, the, the uh, Super Tuesday and everything, so the debates last week and that last week of February or whatever, I I mean I was in and out of the debates, so maybe I missed it, but I don't recall them asking about this, you know, in the debates to the presidential candidates. No, I don't remember so that they, either. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, so I mean, wouldn't you think that would be an appropriate question to ask the presidential candidates? Hey, we're about to send. I mean, even if you want to like describe the Taliban in the worst case, right, as they are as this terrible misogynist human rights violating atrocity, you know, uh, you know, and I'll say that also, I mean, uh, that also applies to a lot of the Afghan government as well, unfortunately, but you know, that's a valid question though, to ask the presidential candidates, how do you feel about this agreement? How do you feel about ending America's longest war? How do you feel about potentially creating a vacuum in Afghanistan that would cause things? How do you feel about uh, making the same mistake possibly that a Barack Obama made by leaving Iraq? All the things that you and I have talked about, certainly that could have been a question that was asked. Um, and again, maybe it was, maybe I missed it because I was in and out, but I don't recall it and I don't recall seeing a discussion of it afterwards. Um, so I think apathy could kill this deal just as much as any of these other organizations or groups or people who uh, don't have an interest in the deal being um, uh, realized into an actual peace agreement. Uh, and I think the best way to, you know, it, it's, it's hard to find the right words to describe this thing. Uh, the way I like to describe it actually is it's the first phase of a peace process. So you look at it as it really, okay, it is a deal between there was a signing ceremony and everything between the United States and the Taliban. However, 
Um, it's the first phase sure. of the process, right? Yeah. And I think that's a, the best way kind of describe it. So if you're hopeful about that phase of the process, and, and I think it's totally reasonable, even with as much cynicism, as much skepticism as we bring to this, uh, yeah. to, to have a little bit of hope. What's your hope? We, we talked about the Democratic side of this and the, the primary, and you're the one who brought up the debates the other night. We've obviously seen less than I think either of us would like to see about foreign policy in this discussion so far. I would yeah. always like to see more foreign policy. But here, here's my question. What's your hope for a less empire-minded American foreign policy? Because no matter who we're talking about, even you know the, the field has winnowed in the last few days. So really, we're talking about uh, Biden, Sanders, I guess uh, Gabbard is still in it if you uh, if if you'd like yeah. to talk about her. Uh, but I think you know, and then on the other side you have Trump, and and so we know that one of the the, the next president is probably still going to be uh, a straight white uh, man in his seventies who was born in the nineteen forties. I, I would say of those three. Sanders easily the least empire minded of 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 those leaders. But there's there's a similarity of worldview that infects all of these old men. And so what's your what's your hope? Because you have you have served under a lot of crusty old white dudes in your time. And I and I imagine uh, there's there's some willingness to kind of put their worst flaws aside that the both of us has. So what so what what is it that you find that's hopeful at this point? Yeah, and in full disclosure, I am turning into a crusty old white dude. You know, I'm I'm, I'm approaching fifty. I just ordered a, uh, you know, good God, I just ordered a heating pad. You know, I mean, like so, right? You know, you definitely, I'm definitely getting to, you know, I'm definitely turning into one of those crusty old white dudes. Um, so, uh, but um, you know, I am actually, unfortunately, this idea of having uh, a less American empire, right? Having less than an imperialist foreign policy. Uh, I am less hopeful for that than I am for the Afghan peace deal, right? For an <laughs> Afghan peace process, well, unfortunately. Yeah, I know. It really is. Um, foreign policy really is the one thing that the president can do unilaterally. I mean, the, the president can do whatever he or, you know, hopefully at some point we'll have a she. I mean, certainly it's not going to happen this time around, um, you know, barring any major, uh, you know, uh, uh, upheaval or, or, or anything or, or, or th- something comes out of the blue that we don't see. You know, uh, there's a contested convention and Hillary Clinton comes out, you know, descends from a, you know, the I rafters. I don't have right? I don't have enough antacids to deal with that, Matt. So please don't. <laughs> there are not enough Tums on the planet. Talk about the things that we need as we get older. I don't I'll need a heating pad. I'll need some Tums. I'll need like a Pepto. You know, like I just I can't even please don't even go there at this point. Please. You know, but, uh, uh, yeah. So, um, you know, aside. So we'll see. But but this is this is the one thing foreign policy. The president can do uh, completely on, uh, you know, his or her own. I mean, can, can, can completely uh, do whatever they want um, without Congress really being involved. And, and you rarely see um, Congress doing things to tie the president's hands. I'm like, I, I'm, um, maybe I'm having, uh, you know, I'm having a hard time right now thinking of when the Congress has tied the president's hands on foreign policy. And I'm going back to like Iran-Contra, yeah. you know, in the 80s, right? I'm trying to think, when was another time that the Congress, you know, said, you know, because even when the Congress doesn't want to do something, the president can do it anyway. Say with, uh, um, you know, the, the, the nuclear agreement between Iran and President Obama, um, that was an agreement. It's basically signed by executive order, signed by the president. It, it's not a treaty. It didn't go to Congress to be no, ratified. Ever, ever but it's Senate, yeah. Right? Exactly. But it's still 
has the force of law. It still has the force of the executive. Uh, maybe not law, I guess. Maybe not. I'm not sure it's semantically if that's correct, but um, it, it has the force of the executive. And, Until and so, the executive in Trump this, turned it around. I mean, that's that's exactly right, right? I mean, and that that's why it's so maddening that more foreign policy is not discussed. At the same time, too, foreign policy is, uh, you know, in, in polling foreign policy, unless there's a major event that has just occurred, you know, say like a 9-11 or we invaded Iraq or, or, or whatever, foreign policy is, is, is very often fourth or fifth or sixth or seventh in the consideration of voters, right? In, 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 you know, I mean... Certainly, and this is where it comes to where I, I think, um, one, there is, as you so well described, a mindset among um, these, these old white men uh, who were all born in the 40s towards America's place in the world, that we have to maintain power, we have to maintain the empire, we have to maintain hegemony. And certainly Sanders is the outlier, right? Like he's the one who's saying that the Soviet Union wasn't so bad. He's the one that's saying capture is yeah. not so bad. We, we've got... To, to, yeah, to a degree. But he's also not saying, like as my, my friend said, if, if, he's, if he's a Marxist, he's the worst Marxist in the world because... You know, Marxism requires in, in anti-imperialism, and you don't see—I don't see Sanders talking about closing. You know, the eight hundred plus U.S. military bases that we have around the world, right? I mean, so like to a degree, and, and more importantly, if the, well, he's the, still trying to win a primary in an election, Matt. So right. he's not going to say that crap in the middle. Yeah. Of- <laughs> I mean, that, that, we all know what would happen. About- yeah, but exactly. That, that's what gets to the point of foreign policy and these issues not being voters' primary concerns, not exactly. what they're going to go out and vote on, right? So then when you're in office and say he does, say he's like, you know, we really need to. If we closed if we closed our military bases, that would save us $80 billion, you know, I mean, that kind of stuff. If we stopped these wars, well, I mean, because we know, everybody knows, and when I say everybody, I'm talking about the U.S. military, I'm talking about the U.S. intelligence agencies, I'm talking about the United Nations, I'm talking about academics, you know, et cetera, et cetera, that, you know, 70, 80, 90 percent of the people who are fighting us in Africa, in the Middle East, in Afghanistan, in Pakistan, are fighting us simply because we are there. It's not because they're religious zealots. They are fighting us because we're occupying their country or we're helping prop up a corrupt government that has killed their friends or their relatives. And so out of revenge, they have now joined an Islamist militant group. The the vast majority of members of these uh, Al-Qaeda-affiliated groups, Islamic State-affiliated groups, the vast majority do not believe what the leadership in those groups believe in. They don't believe in um, more importantly, they want revenge. They want to defend their, their homes and their communities. They see a threat from the outside, uh, whether it be the United States and European powers or whether it just be a, a government that is backed by, uh, you know, that is composed of, uh, you know, people who are ethnically or religiously or tribally different from them who are preying on them. You know, I mean, so, you know, and Sanders, I think Sanders knows this. Certainly his foreign policy guy, Matt Dust, knows this. Matt, Matt knows this, certainly. But I think the problem is, is when you get in office and your policies are, uh, your priorities uh, are uh, Medicare for all, uh, abolishment of college, uh, you know, uh, debt, you know, ab- you know, I mean, the, the climate change, you know, whatever your policies are going to be, you just do not have the political capital to spend on making major foreign policy changes of risky foreign policy changes, right? I mean, and this goes back to, so much goes back to, uh, uh, and it's important that these men are from the 40s, not in a good way, 
But, you know, the 40s, uh, whenever someone asked me which books should I read about these 20 years of endless wars the United States are in, I I bring up uh, 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 two books in particular, and they're both about the Vietnam War. One is David Halberstam's The Best and the Brightest, and the second is Neil Shaheen's A Bright Shining Lie. And if you read those two books about Vietnam, you will understand what has happened with the United States and its foreign policy over the last couple decades. But you know, certainly in the 50s and 60s, you have this who lost China. You have this, uh, this, this, uh, and you certainly, if, if, again, you can go and look at, um, uh, 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 go and, and if you Google Bill Moyer, Lyndon Baines Johnson, Vietnam, you'll find an incredible essay from 2009 where uh, Bill Moyer uh, talks about Lyndon Baines Johnson's decision making on Vietnam and how Johnson knew the wars were wrong. But Johnson also knew he didn't have the political capital, the political strength to do something about it. So he had to go along with the wars. He had to keep sending troops because he also was trying to implement his great, great society program. Civil Rights Act. I mean, there's a lot of. Yeah. Every, oh, he want, I mean, Medicare was eventually supposed to be Medicare for all. Right. I mean, Medicare, my understanding was Medicare was, you know, the, the first aspect of Medicare was for those 65 and older. But eventually it would have been implemented. And, you know, uh, he, that was all torpedoed, basically, right? I mean, to, to, by the Vietnam War, so much that Johnson can't even run in 68. Yeah. You know, so the, all of this is on the mind of the Democratic strategists, uh, on the mind of any presidential candidate, that they just don't have the political strength, the political capital uh, uh, to risk something on foreign policy when they have. And certainly, I think Sanders' plan is... Uh, Gosh, I mean, certainly Reagan changed a lot in his presidency. He ushered in, really ushered in th- those neoliberal policies, um, you know, that then were continued under Clinton and Bush and to uh, underneath Obama. But Sanders is the first candidate in a long time, I believe, who has had that type of Reagan or uh, Johnson type approach, uh, uh, great society, or I'm not sure what you would call Reagan's uh, overall plan for, you know, uh, restructuring, reformulating the United States, but he certainly did. Um, and so Sanders is, is, is the, has, has had the grandest ambitions, I think, of any candidate we've seen in a long time. Um, I mean, grander than Obama, certainly. And Obama had, was, was certainly grand and full of hope and promise and change and everything. So for Sanders to implement uh, these uh, plans of his, these policies of his to, 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 to change American health care, to change American education, to change American industry, uh, you know, uh, in terms of, of climate change, as well as to make, uh, you know, uh, just just what he would bring, hopefully. In a, in, and I'm supportive of all that. Right. And, and hopefully he would be the most pro-union president we've had since FDR, you know, and that's what. But, uh, right. uh, you know, but how could he do that if at the same time he's got to be worried about saying, hey, you've lost Iraq again. You're the one who lost Syria. You're the one who, you know, you're enabling right. our enemies. Yeah. So it's very difficult. Which they're, yeah. 
Well, I asked you for hope, but uh, I'll take what I can get at this point. I, I appreciate that. I, Matt, for people who are listening to this conversation, I do want to have a portion that's just going to be for, for patrons. I know that you have a, a, a Patreon that you do for to support the work that you've been doing since uh, in the last 10 years. I'm going to make sure to link that in the episode. But for patrons of this conversation, I want to ask, of course, I want to ask two questions uh, about... And, and just to tease it here for people who might be considering if they've made it this far, they've enjoyed this conversation. I want to talk about hospitality because it's something that we focus on a lot in this conversation at the table. It's my background as a human being who was part of a restaurant family, but it's also, I think, a better way to organize our politics. I want to talk about what you uh, benefited from. I know Afghans are famous for their hospitality. And I also mm-hmm. want to talk about, I want to challenge you on something that that I've seen you know, some of the work that you've done uh, in the last few years uh, has been on places that it is, is I was surprised when I first saw it. You've done work on RT, Russia Today, mm-hmm. other places, propaganda networks. And I wonder about uh, for people who are concerned about the the influence in our elections, someone who is as, as lucid and as intelligent and who gives a damn as much as you do, why you do that. So for people sure. who I'm going to end the conversation for, for our regular listeners, but for people who uh, continue, uh, I want to ask those two questions. But for now, I'm going to say, Matt Ho, thank you so much for uh, for spending some time with me at the table. Thank you, Jared. I appreciate it.